Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to our midweek live stream study. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together tonight and pray your spirit would be our teacher, that, Lord, you would pour your spirit out upon the study, bringing it forth in the power of your spirit for your glory, giving us grace to apply, well, first of all, to understand and then apply these things into our lives. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, if you're new with us, we are studying the book of Revelation, so please turn there. We are in chapter 1. Book of Revelation, chapter 1. And uh, we have been studying the last couple of weeks the vision of Jesus Christ that John saw and that he wrote down for us to see as well. And as I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, artists uh, have tried to paint a picture of Jesus from this passage and it looks pretty grotesque because uh, it is a vision of the glorified Christ in symbolic form not literal symbolic so let's pick it up in verse 14 as John describes the vision of Christ he said his head and hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like a flame excuse me his eyes like a flame of fire uh, his feet were like fine brass, as, it, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Now, verse 20 uh, tells us, or we are told in verse 20, that the seven stars, Jesus is speaking here, he said the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. The word angel is a transliteration from the Greek word angelos, and it's a word that simply means messenger, messenger. Uh, when we hear or read the word angel, we assume it's a reference to any one of a number of, you know, supernatural beings, uh, both good and fallen, God's angels and the devil's angels. However, John said that Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand, which speaks of authority. The right hand is the hand of authority. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, uh, that's the position of power, but uh, under the Father's authority. And so this is the idea here is that these, the churches are under Jesus' uh, authority, and he exercises that authority uh, over the churches by delegating it to the seven stars. Now, the problem with interpreting these seven stars as angels or spirit beings is that nowhere in the New Testament do we ever see angels involved in the leadership of the church, ever. And because of that, I and many other pastors and commentators uh, tend to see these seven stars as senior pastors or the lead pastors of these seven local churches in Asia Minor. Remember that... Um, the number seven in the Bible is the number of completeness, completeness, which uh, symbolically means that these seven stars represent all leaders of the Christian, of Christian churches. I mean, the complete number of Christian leaders uh, throughout the uh, history of the church. It's just really uh, symbolic for all leaders. These seven churches represent all churches we're going to see uh, starting next week. And uh, these stars, I believe, represent the lead pastors, we would call them uh, senior pastors, of churches throughout history, all right? 
One author put it well. He said, and I quote, these seven men demonstrate the function of spiritual leaders in the church. They are to be instruments through which Jesus, the head of the church, mediates his rule. That is why the standards for leadership in the New Testament for pastors are so high, end quote. Well, again, verse 16, John says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. John saw a sharp double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. The Greek word for sword that John uses here is ramphaya, ramphaya, which was a long, heavy, two-edged sword, about four foot long, actually, which those soldiers leading the charge into battle, on the front lines, you know, running into battle, uh, they would grip this sword with two hands, and, uh, and they would swing it wildly at their opponents as they uh, engaged them in battle. The, the idea was to, uh, it was an effort to maybe sever a limb or split a skull. Uh, this, this was not, <laughs> was not a precision weapon, uh, but a clumsy double-edged club of a sword, if I can put it that way, used for one purpose, and that was to maim and or kill an opponent. And by the way, Satan also has a two-edged sword that he wields quite effectively against his enemies, Christians. A sword that he uses to destroy. Um, destroy a Christian's faith. Destroy a Christian's walk. Uh, their effectiveness for God. Uh, that two-edged sword uh, has one edge, which is doubt. The other, which is discouragement. And the devil is always trying to, to uh, hit us uh, in our heads, <laughs> Uh, to devastate us in the area of our thinking, uh, to try to get us to believe that uh, God doesn't love us. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't care about us, all right? Uh, maybe we're not even saved. Doubts, discouragements, because we don't measure up. We can't get free of the alcohol or the cigarettes or, or the pornography or some other thing that has us bound, and the devil comes in, and he tries to, uh, to, to strike us upside our heads, our thoughts, with these uh, doubts and discouragements to take us away from God, uh, out of the race, away from battle, okay? And sometimes he is effective enough where he can take them off the earth because he pushes them into suicide. That's one of the reasons I believe that Paul said when he talked about the armor of the Christian in Ephesians 6, uh, he talked about the helmet of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. Uh, that's a helmet, metamor uh, uh, allegorically, that represents a protection uh, from the enemy's attacks to your thoughts uh, about whether or not you're really saved or whatever. Know what the scripture has said. How do you put on the helmet of salvation? By knowing what the Bible says about salvation and that you are saved forever once you put your heart of faith in Christ. And uh, you may fall, you may stumble. Uh, you may blow it, but you'll never be disowned. You'll never lose your salvation. And if you if you understand that, uh, the devil can't really uh, affect you uh, with, you know, trying to, to get you to doubt your salvation and get you out of the race and so on. But again, this was this room fire, this heavy broadsword uh, was not a was not a precision weapon. Uh, there, th that was in contrast to a um, the smaller tactical sword described in Hebrews 4, verse 12, which is called the Machaira. A Machaira was a short sword that varied in length, I think anywhere from 6 to 18 inches. 
uh, and it was the common sword carried by a Roman foot soldier uh, and used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, the machaira was kept in a sheath uh, that was attached to the soldier's belt, which meant it was always close at hand, ready to be used. And in fact, the word machaira is, uh, is the same word used for sword in Ephesians 6, 17, when Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit. But again, guys, the word sword in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, is the heavy Ramphia sword, which was used to kill and destroy. And uh, again, this is not a literal depiction, but an allegorical one. And uh, therefore, this sword is not a literal sword, but a figurative sword. It represents the Word of God. And uh, the fact that John describes this sword as coming out of Jesus' mouth is simply a reference to the awesome power that comes from God when he speaks. The same God, Jesus, who spoke the physical universe into existence and uh, by the power of his word and holds it all together by that same powerful word. Check out John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. Jesus spoke the physical universe into existence and holds it together with that same powerful word. But here, the word of God is seen allegorically as a sword that Jesus will use to destroy his enemies upon his return. Look, the same word used to create the physical universe will at that time be used to execute the rebels who have gathered in the valley of Megiddo to do battle with Jesus Christ upon his return to keep him from reigning upon the earth. Turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. I want you to look at verse 19. Revelation 19, verse 19. Talking about this sword that's going to be used that proceeds out of the Lord Jesus' mouth. Uh, that powerful word that created the universe, but will destroy his enemies upon his return. John said, And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So this is a picture of Jesus Christ coming back to the earth, coming with the clouds, uh, his church and the, his mighty angels, coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. And here's the Antichrist, and his forces in the valley of Megiddo, uh, ready to do battle with the Lord. Okay, uh, verse 20, then the beast was captured, that be the Antichrist again, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs, miracles in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two, the Antichrist and false prophet, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest of his army were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The same word can create or destroy, depending on the person and the situation. One author said, and I quote, The word of God can either convict, he mentions Hebrews 4 verse 12, or it can condemn. Revelation 2.16, Revelation 19, verses 19 to 21. It all depends on our heart, he said. 
Jesus will either be our loving Savior or our righteous judge. He goes on to say, Jesus Christ is no longer a babe, uh, a baby in Bethlehem or a man of sorrows crowned with thorns hanging on a cross. He is here seen as the King of kings and Lord of lords, executing judgment upon his enemies, end quote. Another author said, and I quote, combining all these thoughts, uh, the entire vision of Jesus in this chapter, we see Christ in all, in all his perfections as supremely qualified to judge the seven churches. Now, later in the book, he will judge his foes, but judgment must begin at the house of God. And he quotes 1 Peter 4, verse 17 by saying that. All right, back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, the end of the verse. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Guys, this is, was the common response in both the Old and New Testaments. When someone saw the Lord, or even an angel for that matter, they fell down as dead. Now, I bring this up because this is in stark contrast to the silly, frivolous, phony, boastful claims of some who claim that they have seen the risen Christ. I heard one of televangelists said that uh, while he was shaving one morning, Jesus Christ walked into his bathroom and he engaged the Lord in a conversation like it was no big deal. And I say to that baloney, all right? If he had really seen the risen Christ walk into his bathroom, guys, let me tell you something, he would have probably cracked his head open because he would have hit the ground so hard he would have cracked his head in a porcelain bowl on the way down. No, whenever somebody really saw the risen Christ in Scripture, uh, you know, it, it produced fear. Fear. J. Vernon McGee said in his commentary, he said, Jesus' countenance, John describes, was like the sun shining in its strength. You can't even look at the sun. Do you think you'll be able to look at the creator who made the sun? The one who is glorified, the one who is the glorified Christ. How wonderful he is, end quote. All right, Revelation 117 again. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. Listen, I am the first and the last. Now, if you were Jewish reading this, that would immediately take you back into your Tanakh, our Old Testament, because you would have immediately recognized that was a phrase that was used of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In fact, as Jesus is saying this, uh, really he's connecting himself with the God of the Old Testament uh, and saying that Yahweh... Uh, or the great I am of the Old Testament and Jesus, listen, are the same God, are the same God. Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Remembering that Jesus here in Revelation 1 calls himself the first and the last. Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, thus says, the Lord, all capital letters, which means Yahweh, all right, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no 
God. Now, realize, he didn't say, you know, uh, besides us, there are no other gods. This is the Father and the Son, uh, the Father and Jesus, uh, who are talking as two, but talking as one. They are two, right? Uh, he said He said that, um, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Well, there can only be one first and one last. All right, so he's saying that, look, beside me, singular, there is no God. There's one God manifested in three separate and distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here we see the Father and the Son speaking uh, together as one God. And, of course, the Jewish people would have recognized this immediately as God speaking if they would have read Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, when Jesus said, I am the first and the last. Uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 48, verse 12, God said, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. And now back to Revelation 1, 18, he goes on to say, after the Lord Jesus said, I am the first and the last, he said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now, look, when I've witnessed the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, because they believe that, that Yahweh, or Jehovah as they call him, uh, is Almighty God, and that Jesus Christ was created by him. We'll get to, into this a little more in Revelation 3. But that, that Jehovah created Jesus, who is himself a mighty God, but not almighty Jehovah God. So they're polytheists, okay? And I have taken them back to Isaiah 44 and had them read that passage. And I've asked them, well, who's this? Well, that's Jehovah. Okay, take them over into Revelation chapter 1. Let them read verse 18, where Jesus said, I am the first and the last. Um, so, you know, you've got Jehovah saying, I am the first and the last, and then Jesus saying, I am the first and the last. But here, Jesus said, I was dead, behold, I'm alive forevermore. When did Jehovah die? Well, he didn't. Well, who did die in Rise from the Dead? Jesus. So Jesus has to be Jehovah God. Well, they get around it. They excuse it. There's Two firsts and two lasts, they say. No, it can only be one first and one last. Uh, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ, uh, God in human form, they're the same God. Um, the first and second persons of the Trinity. But anyways, Jesus said, I am alive forever. I was dead. Uh, the Greek is literally, I became dead and am alive forevermore. And guys, that simply means that Jesus' resurrection was not a temporary victory over death. In other words, you know, he didn't rise from the dead just to die again. No, his was a permanent victory over death. And guys, listen, since, since the risen Christ lives forever, well, we will also live forever who are his disciples. As believers in Jesus, we are in him. That seems to be the theme of the entire the, the theme of the entire book of, of Ephesians, in Christ, in Him, and uh, when you're saved, you are in you're a member of His body. You're placed in 
the body of Christ, so you're in Christ, okay? And Paul said in Romans 6, by virtue of the fact that we are now in Christ through salvation, all right, through our faith, uh, what, what G Paul said in Romans 6, what Jesus went through, uh, because we are in him, we have also gone through. So in other words, Jesus died, so have we. Jesus was buried, so have we been buried, Paul said in baptism. Jesus rose from the dead. Well, so have we to new life, resurrection life. You see, uh, read Romans 6, verses 1 to 11 uh, on this subject. Everything that has happened to Jesus has happened to those who are in Christ. In other words, uh, those who have put their faith in him. We are now members of his body. And guys, as such, the only way we will be accepted by God into heaven is because we are in Christ. Paul said this in Ephesians 1, verse 6. We are accepted into heaven, into the Father's presence, uh, because we are in the Beloved One. We're in Christ, okay? All right, Revelation chapter 1. And, and by the way, I wanted to bring that out. Because if you're in Christ, and Paul says in Romans 8, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once you're saved, you're sealed, Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ until the day of redemption. And I say that because many Christians are taught, have been taught that they could lose their salvation and go to hell. But if you're sealed in Christ, the only way you could go to hell is if Christ goes to hell. That's ridiculous. Never going to happen. So this, this idea of being in Christ is a very important theological uh, point. And again, read uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. But Revelation 1.18, again, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, Jesus, who was the gentle, sinless Lamb of God, who died in Calvary's cross willingly to save us from our sins at his first coming, is now the risen, triumphant, and fierce lion of the tribe of Judah, who will destroy his enemies at his second coming when he returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. Quite a contrast. He said, I have the keys of Hades and of death. The word Hades means the unseen. And from what I understand, it's a technical, it's the technical Greek religious term used to designate the world of those who departed this life through death, but are alive in another realm. In Revelation 1 verse 18, Hades speaks of the soul, because that's where the soul goes, and death speaks of the body. When a person dies, if they were an unbeliever, their soul goes into Hades, a temporary unseen place of incarceration somewhere in the center of the earth. Whereas the body goes into the grave, the ground, the cemetery, tomb, uh, whatever you want to call it. But in the Old Testament, that place of temporary incarceration in the center of the earth is called Sheol. Sheol. Um, both Hades and Sheol mean the unseen, the unseen realm. Uh, but sometimes are translated the grave in some of the newer translations. Both of them, Sheol, Hades, sometimes translated the grave. Uh, you know, this unseen realm. 
where the souls of people go into uh, after they uh, die. Now look, before Jesus died on the cross for sin, all souls went into Hades upon death, uh, both the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm not going to develop this. You can read it for yourself. But uh, in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, we have this story. Now, be careful. It's not a parable. Uh, there are people that don't believe in hell or in Hades. And uh, so they try to say, well, this was a parable, which means it really didn't happen. It was just a story that was created to uh, make a point. Uh, I'm not sure what the point would be if this wasn't a true story. But in a parable, guys, no one is ever named. In this story, we have a rich man uh, and um, uh, a man called Lazarus. And Lazarus, being a diseased beggar, a believer, though, obviously, died and was carried by the angels into one compartment of Hades in the center of the earth, a place called Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise where, where believers went uh, into before Christ died on the cross. And the rich man died, being an unbeliever, was carried by the angels into the other side of Hades, a place of torment where unbelievers went. Both of these compartments were separated by a gigantic canyon, like the Grand Canyon, I guess, so that, you know, people from one side couldn't go to the other and vice versa. And um, But in this place of paradise, uh, Abraham's bosom, believers like Moses and Isaiah and David and Jeremiah, all those Old Testament saints went uh, when they died. And um, it was paradise, but it was also a prison. In other words, they couldn't leave. Why? Because they couldn't go to heaven yet because Christ had not died for their sins. And so they were stuck there, but again, it was paradise, all right? But when Jesus died on the cross for sin, Paul tells us before he ascended back to his father after he rose from the dead, he, this is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, uh, that after Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended back to his father in heaven, he first descended into Hades, and that would be the part where the righteous resided, the Abraham's bosom part, the paradise, and he unlocked the gates of death and Hades, and he then set the captives free. Uh, and when he ascended back to his father, he um, led these Old Testament saints to heaven. So today, Abraham's bosom, this paradise part of Hades, is empty. Uh, of course, the other side where unbelievers go to uh, is still very much active. Um, but because today we find ourselves on this side of the cross, in other words, uh, Jesus has paid for the sins of the world. Uh, so when a believer today dies, uh, who, uh, when a believer in Christ dies today, they don't go into Abraham's bosom. Uh, their soul goes directly into the presence of Jesus, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, someday, Jesus will unlock the gates of death and Hades for all the unbelievers. We'll study that when we get to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. At one point, he will unlock the other compartment of Hades where all these unbelievers, after they died, went, and they will be resurrected to stand before him at the great white throne judgment where all of them will be cast into hell or, in other words, the lake of fire. Again, we'll study that uh, when we get there. But in Revelation 1, verse 19, 
Jesus said to John, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And we have already pointed out that this is basically the outline of the book of Revelation given to us by the Lord Jesus himself, where he commanded John to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after this. And so again, the outline is very simple, three divisions. Uh, write the things which you have seen, which would be the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Write the things which are. Well, in John's day, and even up till today, we are in the church age, which started at Pentecost and will conclude at the rapture. Uh, write the things which are which are the things of the church, chapters 2 and 3. And then the third division is write the things which will take place after this. And the Greek phrase is actually metatauta, which means after these things. A very important phrase. We'll study that more when we get to chapter 4. All right. But that's the simple outline of the book. Now, in verse 20, Jesus said, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, guys, once again, the seven lampstands were oil-burning lamps, not candlesticks, as the King James translates it. Strange translation there was no wax uh in these in these candle lampstands uh they were oil burning lamps of course oil in the bible is a type of the holy spirit the light uh, of course is symbolic for god's truth shining in a dark world a world full of satan's lies i will have you turn to these two first of all john 8 john 8 Because you have to see this, okay? Jesus came into a world of darkness. Darkness represents Satan's lies, okay? Spiritual darkness. And, uh, of course, Paul tells us that uh, Satan is the god of this world. He's in control of this world. He has control of pretty much all, well, not all, but uh, most of the um, avenues of communication, you know, uh, television, radio, uh, the uh, printed uh, news and, and so on. Uh, and he uses it to control people, to brainwash people into thinking the way he wants them to think, which is to think the thoughts of darkness to keep them away from the light, the light being, of course, the truth of God. But Jesus in John 8 is confronting the Pharisees and the scribes um, who he is calling uh, the devil their father. Let me pick it up in verse 44. He said, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He murdered Adam and Eve, not literally, but uh, spiritually in the Garden of Eden. Again, through his lies, you shall become like God. You're not going to truly die. Uh, but uh, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, God's truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources. In other words, he is just talking in his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. And then if you back up to verse 12 of John 8, Jesus said, he said, I am the light of the world. Now you understand the whole context 
is Satan's lies, spiritual darkness, um, in contrast to God's truth, God's light. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What did Jesus mean again when he said, I am the light of the world? Well, we just said it. In the scriptures, light and darkness are used quite often as metaphors. Metaphors. Light is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual truth, holiness, moral purity, and obedience toward God. Darkness is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual error, evil, moral impurity, and rebellion against God. And this is the battle, guys. Light and darkness are really used of the battle that we are engaged in. The light battling the darkness. Uh, the light being God's word, God's truth, battling the devil's lies. Uh, we read in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Greek could be translated, could not extinguish or overcome it. Verse 9, that was the true light, Jesus Christ, which gives light to every man coming into the world. John says that the true light, Jesus Christ, invaded a world of darkness. Again, moral, uh, spiritual and moral evil, so that people could know the truth. The truth being God's truth, of course. Uh, God's truth is the only spiritual truth, okay? Uh, all truth uh, is of God. All truth is of God, especially spiritually. Uh, but um, Jesus, the true light, came into a world of darkness, a world full of Satan's lies, spiritual deception. And he came to be a light to show men and women the way back to God because the devil had driven us from the Garden of Eden, from fellowship uh, with God, right? Adam and Eve, when they sinned, and the, and the images of us being driven away from God because of sin. And Jesus came into the world to die for our sins, but in the process to give us God's truth that would uh, light the way back to God. Light the way back to God. Guys, light is always more powerful than darkness. We all know that. Um, the lies and deceptions of the devil are never a match for the truth of God, which Jesus came into this world to bring. We read his famous words in John 8, verses 31 and 2. He said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And again, you know the context. It was the darkness of Satan's lies, and Jesus came to bring the truth or the light of God's word. And so Jesus is the light of the world. But you remember then how in Matthew chapter 5, he turned to his disciples and said one day, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's out of Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. Now, guys, in saying this, this is important, okay? Uh, in saying this, Jesus was looking ahead to when his church would be born. That happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but he was looking ahead when he said that to the day his church would be born and would become the light of the world at that time. The light of the world. This would happen upon Jesus' departure and return to his Father, 
the church would become then a beacon to guide people back to God. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he gave his, as he gave his disciples the truth of God and they received him, then he said, now you are the light of the world because God lives inside of us through his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is light, all right? And he radiates through us primarily as we speak forth the truth of God, which is light, spiritual truth. Um, the idea is that we, as his church, are to be a beacon. Uh, Paul said in Philippians 2, I believe, he said uh, that you would be uh, lights that would shine forth in a dark world, demonic dark world. Uh, as God has planted us here to be lights in this world. Now in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, when Jesus tells John, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches, some see in this a reference to the menorah, which was in the tabernacle. Now, I brought a little prop tonight, all right? Here is a little prop of a menorah, if you can all see this, okay? I got this in Israel, and uh, the menorah has uh, a main stem, okay, main stem, and then three branches on either side, okay? And on the top of each branch, there was this bowl, or sometimes called a cup, these bowls, all right? And in each of the bowls, there was a wick, and of course, oil, olive oil, the best, the first pressing virgin olive oil was kept for this purpose to fill each of these bowls so that the light of the menorah, uh, originally in the tabernacle, could continue to shine. And um, with that in mind, okay, the menorah, um, this vision of Jesus that John describes in Revelation 1 verse 20 uh, seems to come, I think it's pretty obvious, it comes from a vision that Zechariah had. Remember we talked about uh, in the book of Revelation, we have, you know, uh, many references back to the Old Testament, all right? Turn to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4. It's near the, near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 4. Let's start with verse 1. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other uh, at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, let me break this down a little bit, because I think it's worth exploring, all right? The problem with the menorah, all right, if you were a priest in those days, was the priest 
this is one of their jobs, okay? You know, you get one of these jobs, which you have to do all the time. It gets kind of monotonous and, and, and burdensome. If you were a priest in those days, one of your responsibilities was that you had to fill the bowl of the menorah. Now, there were actually bowls, okay? Uh, one bowl for each of the seven branches for a total of seven bowls, all right? Uh, these bowls had to be filled once every day because God mandated once the menorah was lit, the light was never to go out. So they had to constantly, every day, make sure these bowls were filled with oil and, of course, the wicks were trimmed uh, so that the light never went out. Now, if that wasn't labor-intensive enough for the tabernacle, which only had one menorah, all right, uh, and they... They tell me, I don't know if it's tradition or if it's something they I missed from the Old Testament. They claim that that original menorah in the tabernacle was about five foot three inches tall. I don't know. Uh, but when Solomon, there's only one menorah in the tabernacle. When Solomon built the temple, he put 10 menorahs in it. All right. 10 menorahs. And if I know Solomon, they weren't five foot tall. They were massive which meant the priest had to climb up ladders with buckets of oil to fill all those bowls. I mean, think of the effort that went into filling the bowls of 10 menorahs, 70 bowls in all, every day. Now, some people believe that Zechariah, besides being a priest, excuse me, besides being a prophet, was also a priest. And I think all the priests probably tried to imagine ways uh, those bowls could be filled. I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in their sandals, all right? Uh, I'm thinking, if I was a priest back then, I'd, I would daydream uh, of, of, of some way that uh, those bowls could be filled that wouldn't be so labor-intensive, right? That wouldn't require all the work of carrying buckets of oil uh, up to each bowl to fill them every day, 70 uh, in Solomon's temple. I mean, it could be that Zachariah's vision was based even on a dream he had. He was so thinking about this, of how wonderful it would be if pipes could be inserted into olive trees directly somehow, and then each pipe could run from the olive tree into each of the bowls, eliminating the, uh, the, the need for the priest to do it manually, right? Now, guys, I don't know, and I'm not being... Facetious. I, I don't know if that's where the term pipe dream came from, all right? Pipe dream. A pipe dream, of course, is a dream that has little or no chance of ever coming to pass, okay? It's a pipe dream, all right? Did it come from maybe Zachariah's uh, dream that he maybe dreamt or at least imagined that, wow, as a priest, how can I get out of the work of, of carrying buckets of oil up a ladder to fill 70 bowls. Wow, if we could somehow take pipes and stick them into olive trees and run them directly into each of the bowls, boy, that would eliminate all that hard work, all right? Um, but let me just say this, okay? There's this, a symbolism in this that I'm getting to. The menorah symbolically represented Jesus. Now, he's the main stem the main stem. And the six branches, six, of course, being the number of man. Uh, man was created on the sixth day, and for a lot of other reasons, the number six is the number of man. Um, but it represents those who are connected to Jesus. Those who are connected to Jesus, uh, those who are one with him, 
and complete through their relationship with him, six branches plus one stem equals seven. Of course, that's the number of completeness. And so, guys, I believe the menorah represents Jesus Christ and his church. Now, in the tabernacle with the one menorah, everything in the tabernacle pointed to Christ. Every piece of furniture uh, was symbolic of Jesus in some way. So when you entered the tabernacle, that first compartment to the right, you have the table of showbread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. To the right, you had the menorah, which was the only source of light in the tabernacle. I'm the light of the world. Right before the curtain uh, or veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was with the mercy seat and so on. Uh, You had the golden altar of incense where the priest would offer incense, which was uh, symbolic of prayers. Jesus is our great high priest. He is our intercessor. Everything in the tabernacle, in fact, everything about the tabernacle, including the fencing around it and so on, Go on our Exodus study, or our, I think it was our Hebrew study. Both one, I did them on either study, uh, where we looked at the tabernacle in detail. Fascinating study. All right, not that I because I gave it, because I used sources that I read years ago, thinking this is incredible. This is incredible, and so I like to share that with you. But um, I believe, guys, that the menorah represents Jesus and His church. The very thing he said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The church is connected to Jesus, who himself is the light of the world. That light is kept burning through a constant flow of oil, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, that oil, or the Holy Spirit's power, uh, is not something that we have to work to manufacture, like a priest carrying buckets of oil up to fill the menorah to keep it the light burning. The way that the light burns in the church and gives light to the world is through a constant flow of the Holy Spirit. It's His doing, not our hard work, okay? Uh, that's very important as we move into chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the church. It's very important that as we move into those chapters that deal with the church, as a preference to that study uh, in Revelation, that we understand that in what Jesus said in verse 20 of chapter 1, going back to Zechariah chapter 4, he is talking about how that the work of God is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not our hard work. Too many people have tried for too many years to make things happen. We're not called as pastors or Christians to make things happen. God will do what he wants to do if we're just connected to Jesus in fellowship. That's what the menorah was all about. If we are connected in fellowship with Jesus, in other words, we're saved, but we're also walking in unity uh, and all, and we're in close fellowship with him, the Holy Spirit is going to flow, the light will burn, and the work of God will get done. Now, I bring all this out. Because my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, in his testimony of how he got saved as a young boy, his mom and dad were very strong believers, and and he became a Christian at a young age. In all his life, he wanted to serve the Lord, right? And at one point, he um, gets into ministry, all right? 
uh, and uh, and he is confident that he is going to turn the world upside. These are his words: turn the world upside down for his Lord, because he had all kinds of great ideas of how he was going to get people saved and make things happen. And the Lord let him labor for 17 years, year after year, and nothing happened. He never pastored churches more than 100 people, all right? And uh, at the end of that 17 years, he happened to be at a conference for his particular denomination. This denomination was very big on contests to help build the church, add numbers to the church. And uh, so at this meeting, uh, the... Uh, the, the the head deacon or the uh, the I forgot what he was called but he was the 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 supervisor over this uh, area of the de- denomination and uh, you know he laid out uh, this new contest for the spring uh, you know semester I guess or this spring of the year and they had a three month contest that they were going to do and as he laid it out, he had certain people that were working with him that jumped up at this conference. And, yeah, that's a great idea. We, we can't wait to try this. And Chuck said, you know, after 17 years of contest, I just couldn't do another contest. I just sat there. I, I couldn't even get up and, 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 and get excited. I just sat there. And so uh, the bishop, that's what it was, saw me sitting there, came over afterwards, and he said, lectured me on the evils of rebellion and so on. And so Chuck said, I went back to my hotel room. I knelt by my bed and I said, Lord, I'm not a rebel. You know, you know I'm not a rebel. I just can't go another conference. I can't do it, Lord. I'm burned out. I, I'm, I'm contested out. And Chuck said the Lord gave him two ver- scriptures. Spoke to him very clearly. Scriptures that Chuck had known for years, but the Lord very powerfully gave him two scriptures. The first one was out of Zechariah 4, verse 6. It is not by power, your power or your might, but by my spirit, the work of God will get done. And then out of Acts chapter 2, the Lord added daily to the church those being saved. Chuck said, thank you, Lord, got up and went back to his church. And around this time, the Lord had already shown Chuck uh, through a, uh, a couple of books he was reading. But one of the authors uh, challenged the readers to teach the Bible verse by verse. This was a revolutionary thing. Chuck had never uh, thought of teaching the Bible verse by verse. Uh, it was always topicals, okay? And uh, But this author challenged the readers uh, that if a church would teach the Bible verse by verse, a pastor or a leader, it would revolutionize the church. And Chuck thought, I don't know what else to do. The contests aren't working. And so he began to teach the the Bible verse by verse, started in 1 John uh, and taught that book verse by verse, then moved over to Romans. And as he was teaching the book of Romans, the church doubled and then quadrupled in size just by teaching God's word verse by verse. It wasn't Chuck's power or might. It was the word of God energized by the Holy Spirit, the author of the word, and he was connecting with people through the word touching people's hearts, opening their eyes. They were repenting of their sins. They were getting saved. Um, Well, they were, as a denomination, member of a denomination, Chuck had to file, uh, you know, these reports quarterly of the attendance, because that's what denominations do. And after Chuck filed his attendance, after three months, uh, they sent him a letter and said, congratulations, you've won the contest. Come in, we want to have you come out and get your trophy. 
And Chuck just filed it in the garbage and said, Lord, I can't go get a trophy for a contest I never even, you know, enacted. Uh, we weren't, he said, the bishop didn't know we weren't doing any contests. We were just teaching the word. Chuck eventually left that denomination and became an independent uh, evangelical pastor and eventually wound up pastoring uh, Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. And most of you know the story. This is one of those verses that Jesus alludes to in Revelation 1, verse 20, going back to Zechariah 4, verse 6. It is not by power nor by might, but by my spirit that the work of God gets done. It revolutionized Chuck's life. And uh, I believe it will still revolutionize um, churches. If churches will just faithfully teach God's word verse by verse, in the power of the Spirit, and let the Spirit do what only the Spirit can do, and that is fill hearts with the oil of the Holy Spirit, with light, life. It's a transforming thing. All right, let's finish. Jesus said, he said, um, the seven stars are in my right hand. If the seven stars represent the leaders, of these local churches in Asia Minor in those days, but speak symbolically to all pastors in any age. Notice where they are in Jesus' right hand. All right. First of all, that speaks of security. Uh, the right hand being the hand of power. All right. It speaks of security. But as pastors, guys, we must. We must be in Jesus' right hand. In other words, we must understand uh, we must be in a place where we're in fellowship with him, a place where he can, you know, hold us, protect us, and especially control us. Because that's what it means to be a pastor. You're following Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus, right? Too many pastors are going their own way and then asking God to come alongside them. No, he leads, we follow, he controls, we go where he is going because that's where the work will get done. We are living at a time when we never in the history of the church, I believe Jesus is coming soon. I believe the events of what we're seeing throughout our country indicates that uh, Jesus is coming very, very soon. And this is a time, yes, for churches in general, but for pastors in particular, to make sure that you are in a place where the Lord Jesus is holding you, is, is protecting and providing and especially controlling your ministry for him. You don't want to be a renegade. You don't want to be a kind of a lone ranger type of a person where you're out there doing your thing and asking God to bless it. That's not where you want to be. And by the way, let me just end by saying this. John begins this book, okay, the book of Revelation, all right, the unveiling of Christ, he begins, well, Jesus, who actually is revealing this to John, so it's really not John begins, but John is writing what Jesus is showing him. And the first thing that John sees that Jesus is showing him is a vision of the risen, glorified Christ. Yes, in symbolic form, but it's a vision of Jesus. And I was thinking about this, okay? Why start with this vision of Jesus? I mean, we want to get right into all the, you know, the judgments and things. Why did the Lord, um, who encouraged all believers to read this book, remember a special blessing, verse 3 of chapter 1, 
would be given to those who read this book, right, and do the things written in it, why start with this vision of Jesus? Guys, I believe the Lord spoke to my heart. And he said, this must be the focus. Jesus must be the focus of our lives, our marriages, our ministries, our churches, and our nation. I mean, before we get into anything else, the first thing we are confronted with is a vision of the risen Christ. Because I believe that is the very thing that everything after that has to come, that has to come first. Um, the vision of Christ, he's got to be at the center. Interesting, and I'll close with this. If you study Israel uh, encamped in the wilderness, right? They came out of Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. And um, they spent 40 years in the desert, okay, in the wilderness. But if you remember when the Shekinah glory, which was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, and I'm talking probably a gigantic pillar. I'm thinking this thing was at least a mile or more wide, all right? And whenever the, uh, the Shekinah glory lifted up and began to move, they were to break camp and start going with it, of course. Uh, and then when the Shekinah glory stopped, they were to set up the tabernacle, all right, which, of course, had the uh, Ark of the Covenant, which represented the throne of God, right? And the Shekinah glory would hover over the tabernacle. And all the nation, all the tribes were to, to camp to the north, south, east, and west, all facing toward the tabernacle. And the idea was from the very first time they woke up in the morning and left their tents, to the last thing they saw before they entered their tent for the night to go to sleep was God. He was the focus. He was at the center of the camp. And I believe Jesus Christ wants to be, needs to be, doesn't just, he needs to be the center of our lives. We have to keep our eyes on him. Everything flows from that, okay? Everything flows from that. Uh, we have to understand that. Uh, we want God somehow and Jesus to be, uh, you know, orbiting our world. No. He's got to be at the heart of our world. He's got to be at the center. He's got to be the one we look at constantly uh, in, 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 in the way we, we walk our Christian walk, uh, our marriages, uh, our everything has to focus on Jesus. So that is the vision of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, in chapter 1. Next week, God willing, we will start the second main uh, point or uh, petition of the book, Chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us such a clear picture of who you are. Give us grace, Lord, to bow before you, to make you the very center and focal point of our lives. Because if we don't, our lives will be out of control. They will not uh, function the way you have designed if you are not at the center, uh, but we have placed ourselves at the center, everything will be out of kilter, out of whack. Uh, nothing will work the way it should. And so, Lord, give us grace to repent of a self-centered life that we might have a Christ-centered life. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. And thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great evening.